we'll be dealing with a much larger section of the book of Revelation than what I'm going to read as the scripture reading, and some of it we're going to go through really quickly with this kind of a wave and a nod toward the content that is there. So if this morning leaves you with more questions than answers, at least with regard to some portions of the text that we're dealing with, by all means, give me a call, send me an email. Um, we will set up a time to talk about these things. Um, there are answers to the questions, but um, there's less time, maybe, than there are answers. So our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 8, and I will be reading verses 1 through 5. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So for the reading from God's word this morning, please be seated. And let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we once again venture into this book of the revelation of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, we would pray, show us Christ. Make clear his role as King of kings and sovereign over all the universe, that Father, convinced of his glory, we may bow before him and before you, and in the grace and strength of your Holy Spirit, worship you alone. Our God, how wonderful indeed you are. Show us your wonders through your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So our text last Lord's Day ended with a promise that was addressed ultimately to all of God's people, to all of us who are sitting here this morning, but especially in what I believe to be the historic context of the revelation, that promise was addressed to the saints and martyrs of both the Old Testament time and that transitional time when Christ had ascended to the right hand of the Father, but the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. So even though the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross had been made for us and for our salvation, there were still priests in Jerusalem who were slaughtering animals and pouring out their blood on the altar as if somehow that was pleasing to God or would in some way cover for their sins. And during those days, we know that there were Christians who were persecuted, there were Christians who were martyred for their faith. The very first story of a martyr that we have in Scripture, in the New Testament anyway, Stephen, comes during that transitional time. Christ had ascended, he was standing, waiting for Stephen at the right hand of the Father when Stephen died, but in the meantime, the temple was also still standing. In chapter 6, when the Lamb opened the fifth seal, John had seen under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness, Marturion, the witness that they had borne. 
and listen to the prayer of these martyrs. If you bear witness, then you are a martyr, especially if you bear witness by shedding your blood for the sake of the name of Christ. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth or on the land, as we saw last time. In chapter 7, we meet this same group of people, this group of saints. And this time, they are described as being before the throne of God, just where the altar would be, by the way. And the promise was extended to them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. As we noted at the time, this is the promise of God. It's God's promise to those saints of the old covenant in that transitional time. It is God's promise to his saints of the new covenant. It is God's promise to us, and God always keeps his promise. And that truth will have direct bearing on our text and the extended part of our text for this week, which describes John's vision of how the prayers of these saints are received before God. Now, remember what they're praying. How long, O Lord? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, it's not a prayer that we are accustomed to praying, but it's one that's been raised by the people of God in both covenants of Scripture in many different ways. There are a lot of psalms that carry that same force. How long, Father? How long, O Lord, before you come and return and keep your promise? Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would tear them apart and come down as you did in days of old when you rode on the clouds as your chariot and you walked on the wings of the wind. How long? And as we noted, this is a way that God keeps his promises. And, and we see this in Revelation chapter 8. Verse 1 begins, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now the significance of that silence might be lost on us. If we're not super familiar with the Old Testament, if we haven't done a little bit of reading outside of Scripture, in the works of Edersheim, for instance, or other places, we might not realize that this refers very directly back to a practice in the temple service as that happened in John's day. The Jewish convert to Christianity and Bible scholar Alfred Edersheim described this in his classic work on the ministry and services of the temple. And watch for the parallels between what he writes about what was happening day by day in the temple and what we've seen in Revelation chapter 1 already. Slowly, the incensing priest and his assistants ascended the steps to the holy place. If you can remember way back, 2016, there's a series on the Psalms of Ascent, and one theory on the Psalms of Ascent is that they were sung by the people as the priests slowly made their way, ascended those steps to go into the temple to offer the incense offering. But as the incensing priest and his 
assistants ascended the steps of the holy place, one of the assistants reverently spread the coals on the golden altar. So one of the assistants had taken coals into a censer from the great altar of sacrifice in the courtyard of the temple, and then taking that censer, he went and he poured it out on that golden altar and arranged the coals. And then the chief officiating priest was left alone within the holy place to await the signal of the president before burning the incense. It was probably during this time, while thus expectant, that the angel Gabriel appeared to Zacharias in the gospel according to Luke. Remember, he had gone in to make the incense offering when the angel appeared to him to tell him that he was going to have a son. And as the president gave the word of command, which marked that time of the incense had come, the whole multitude of the people without, the Levites and the worshipers, those who had gathered, who had sung when the priest and his assistants ascended the steps into the holy place, that whole multitude withdrew from the inner court and they fell down before the Lord, spreading their hands in silent prayer. Which silent prayer lasted, guess what? About the space of a half hour, because the offering of the incense inside the holy place was done reverently so that the smoke of that incense would ascend before the veil of the temple and create an additional veil as the prayers of God's people were raised before him. Even so, the silence in heaven. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So in that true holy place, that true heavenly sanctuary, the temple and tabernacle into which Christ entered, to offer his own blood as once in its shadow counterpart on earth. As the incense offering rose before the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the incense is accompanied by the prayers of the saints as they ascend before the throne of the Lord. And verse 4 of our text says just that, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture, but it's what happens next that forms the connection between the prayers of the martyrs. How long, O Lord, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the land in the fifth seal in the events that follow this beautiful scene in chapters 8 and 9? Look at verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar. That would be the censer that was just used to offer the incense together with the prayers of the saints. And he filled it with fire from the altar and he threw it on the earth, that is, on the land. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This happens a lot in the book of Revelation and in other places of Scripture. It even corresponds to some extent to what was happening at the top of Mount Sinai when God came and originally gave his people the book of the covenant, which is what's being opened by Jesus as we go through the revelation. What 
John is saying in some of that similar language to the decreation language that we talked about last Sunday is that when God comes near, big things, earth-shaking things happen. And here in this passage, he's telling us that even when God's people pray, when they cry out to him according to his will, earth-shaking things happen. And this is the description that is setting us up to understand all that follows in chapters 8 and 9. It's helping us understand that everything that follows in those chapters is actually the answer to the prayers of God's people. I said this before, but it's, it's worth reminding ourselves that oftentimes people have looked at this book of Revelation and thought, well, there's a lot of bad stuff that happens there. Surely that bad stuff must be somehow contrary to the will of God, and why doesn't God intervene and do something about it? But in reality, the things that happen in the book of Revelation are all happening according to the sovereign plan and purpose of Almighty God. God doesn't have to step in to do something about it. God has stepped in to do something about something the covenant breaking and faithlessness and disobedience that have been going on for generations. In the temple service, that incense was offered during a time of silent prayer. And then came the priestly blessing from number 6, verses 24 to 26. We all know this one. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. When Zechariah was in the temple and the angel spoke to him, remember he was left mute. And when he came out, he couldn't talk and he had to sort of signal to the people and their shock would have been all the greater because this was his job. Having offered the incense on the little golden altar before the veil, he was supposed to come out and raise his hands and bless the people, but he came out and he couldn't talk. And so he was not able to bless the people, but his son would be a blessing beyond all that any priest ever said. The part of this that we may not be aware of is that whenever the priests of Israel said these words, raised their hands and blessed the people, the people replied, blessed be the Lord God the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. We might incorporate that into our service at some point. Shortly after the blessing and the response by the people, an offering was made. The offering by fire on the great altar outside. And then guess what happened? Trumpets. Trumpets as prescribed in Numbers 10, verse 10. And this is why we have to just keep going back to the Old Testament with this book because everything in here is drawn from the various passages of the prophets and of the law that speak to what God is doing exactly in this book as his son is revealed in glory. Numbers 10 verse 10 said, On the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feasts, and at the beginnings of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. And so you know, I, just, I have to touch on this um, because that's one of those things we often think 
in terms even of the sacraments, the signs and seals that God gives as reminders for us. But watch the language here in Numbers, which is echoed in other parts of Scripture as well. They shall be a reminder of you before the Lord your God. God said to Noah, I will put my bow in the clouds. And when I see the bow, when I, God, see the bow, I will remember the covenant that I have made with all living things. God gives us signs and seals and sacraments, not merely for our sake, they certainly have some application in that direction too, but for his own, he says. So we might remember when the trumpets are being blown that God is remembering his people, that God is remembering us if we were old covenant saints. You see, what we are witnessing in this book of Revelation is the heavenly reality the eternal reality of which all of the ritual, ceremony, and sacrifice of the Old Covenant was simply a shadow. Of course, in the heavenly temple, this ceremony is not performed by Levites or priests like it would have been in the earthly sanctuary. Rather, dropping back to Revelation 8, verse 2, then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And then in verse 6, now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And because, maybe contrary to popular belief, I do realize that we have a time limit here. I am not going to be able to go through all of those so-called trumpet judgments in detail. We're going to kind of run by them this morning and we're going to give a nod and we will come back at the end to hear where we have started in order to see that even this, with all of the horrors that unfold with these trumpet judgments, is yet another revelation, another portrait of Jesus Christ, which is not intended to scare us. Nothing in this book was ever meant to scare the people of God. If you've read it and understood it in a way that you found frightening, just set that aside and go back and read it again. Blessed is the one who reads aloud and the one who hears and the one who keeps the words of this prophecy. Set aside the fear and whatever interpretation brought you to that place of fear and go back to the book and look for Jesus Christ because it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Nothing here was meant to scare us or anybody else for that matter. What we find here is meant to make us fall down and worship. So even in some of the troubling and disturbing things we're about to look at, the reaction that we are meant to have is to understand that the sovereign God is at work in his world. And we just bow before him and give him the praise. But before we move on, consider Leviticus 26. I mentioned this chapter several weeks back, earlier in the series. It's one of a couple of scriptures in the Old Covenant where God spells out with great detail his promises. Now, there are promises of blessing, and there are promises of cursing or punishment. Promises for those who either keep or break the words of the covenant. Leviticus 26, verses 14 to 16, uses exactly this language. But if you will not listen to me, says God, 
and will not do all these commandments. If you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache and you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. Verse 25 of this same chapter goes in that same direction. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. Vengeance on God's behalf for the breaking of the covenant that his people were guilty of. And the list goes on and on. Now the point, of course, as with all judgment, is to bring people to repentance. That is to bring them to faith in God through Christ. But what we need to notice specifically today is the points in Leviticus 26 where God tells his old covenant people what will happen if they do not repent. Verse 18, if in spite of this, in spite of the wasting disease and things that I just read a little bit about, if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And then in verse 21, then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. Verses 23 and 24, and if by this discipline and all of these passages have material between talking about exactly what God will do to the people of Israel if they break his covenant. And so we come to 26, 23, and 24. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And once more, in verses 20 and 27 and 28, the same chapter is repeated four times. But if in spite of this, you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Get the idea? In Leviticus, there are these cycles, these sevenfold cycles of judgment that God promised to send, one on the heels of another, if his old covenant people rebel and break the terms of that covenant. And if we were to read through them, these cycles escalate in severity. They are, of course, all terrible. It is a fearful thing, we are told in the book of Hebrews, to fall into the hands of the living God. But as terrible as all of them are, if we could take the time to look, there's this escalating nature in these cycles of judgment in Leviticus chapter 26. The first cycle begins in relatively mundane terms. I read those a moment ago. But the first declaration of the promise or first promise of the fourth cycle is found in verse 29. And I apologize because some of you are going to find this really horrible. But after saying, if you still do not turn back to me, if you still do not repent, if in fact, in spite of this, you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. This was fulfilled literally at a couple of different times 
in the history of God's old covenant people. When the Assyrians came, when the Babylonians came, and when the Romans came, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. As I mentioned, I think just last time, Josephus, in his book, Wars of the Jews, describes with detail, agonizing detail, that this is exactly what happened in Jerusalem during the Roman siege that ended with the destruction of the city and the temple in A.D. 70. If I can just be permitted to wander a bit from the point here, to drift off from Revelation, see how seriously... God takes sin. We make light of it these days. We laugh about it. I have heard people say, when talking about the reality of eternal life and eternal death, well, I want to go to hell. All of my friends are going to be there. Nowhere, nowhere in Scripture does God make light of sin. Nowhere in Scripture does God approve of those false prophets who say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. God does not take covenant breaking lightly. And to heal the wound of his people, God gave his only begotten son who took the curses of the covenant onto himself. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This is how seriously God takes sin. It's not a laughing matter. It required the death of his son, and we need to bear that in mind as we approach the table a little later. That this fellowship meal, this symbol of what in the book of Revelation is going to be called the wedding supper of the Lamb came at that cost. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. The cross, as horrifying as the things that happened on the cross, if you've ever seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ. You've seen some pretty graphic visual presentations of what the physical suffering was on the cross, but it was only the lesser part because it was only the visible part of Christ's suffering. The Heidelberg Catechism tells us that all through his life, but especially during the time on the cross, Jesus descended into hell and he endured the torments of hell so that we would not have to. That's the price that was paid so that we could come to this table this morning. But coming back to Revelation, we see this same repeating pattern of seven. Remember in Leviticus 26, seven times, seven times, seven times, seven times. In Revelation, we see that same pattern and we see the same sort of escalation. We started off with the seven letters to the seven churches, kind of like a a shot across the bow, a bit of a warning to churches who were about to experience something that they had never seen before in all of covenant history. And then the seven seals introduced them, the seven churches, and us 
to the nature of the judgments that were to follow in the wake of the ascended Lord as he rode forth conquering and to conquer when the first seal was broken. And in the sixth seal, they introduced us to the language of decreation. Now, with the breaking of the seventh seal, the prayers of God's people, their cries for covenant justice rise up before the throne of God and the next cycle of seven is ushered in, the seven trumpet judgments. With the blowing of the first two, we'll see destruction wrought on the land and on the sea, representing biblical cosmology as that was understood in those days when people then, in the time when scripture was written, talked about the land and the sea. They basically perceived that, not in geophysical terms, but as the land of Israel and Everybody else, the sea, the chaos, the abyss of the Gentile world. And we're going to see judgment on that. But it's worth remembering that before that judgment began, back in chapter 7, we were told an angel ascended from the rising sun with the seal of the living God, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Everyone reads the book of Revelation and some people get stuck on the whole mark of the beast thing. We will come to that some weeks from now. But what we often miss is that six chapters before it talks about the mark of the beast. It talks about the mark of the Savior, the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. So while these judgments will have bearing on the people of God, they are not intended for those who belong to him. Some would be martyred in the course of events, but they would stand before the throne. They would stand before the throne unharmed with that great multitude that no man could number, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The revelation of Jesus Christ was never meant to make us afraid, as I said a few moments ago. It was meant to encourage and to give us good hope, to remind us that no matter what happens in this world, no matter what we go through, we stand with that multitude. And salvation belongs to our God and to his Christ. The third trumpet brings judgment on the rivers and streams of water. What has been a refreshing source of nourishment is turned poisonous and bitter. It also is contrasted to the river of living water that flows out through the street of the city from beneath the throne of God and brings life to the nations later in the book. The fourth trumpet strikes the principalities and powers, if you will. A third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars are struck. And once again, remember Joseph's dream. I know I've come to this before, probably just last week, but it's so important. When Jacob went to Joseph, or when, jo- when Joseph went to Jacob, and he said, hey, Dad, I had this dream. And in my dream, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars all bowed down to me. When Joseph shared that with his dad, Jacob did not chide him for his ignorance of astronomy. What Jacob chided him for was asking if he was so arrogant to believe that the principalities and powers in his life, his mother, his father, and his 11 brothers, would really bow down to him. 
Because in Joseph's dream, in Joseph's vision, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars stood for people. They stood for authorities in his life. And that's what they stand for when we encounter them in various prophetic passages and visions. When Joel says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit, says the Lord, and the sun will be darkened and the moon will turn to blood before that great and terrible day of the Lord. He's not talking about astrological phenomena. He's talking about the authorities, the things in which you have trusted, the things that you thought were as constant as the sun and the moon and the stars are going to be shaken and they're going to fall. At this point, after the fourth trumpet, there's a bit of an interlude. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 13, John wrote, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to sound, and understandably so. Because here's one aspect of the escalating nature of these judgments. Douglas Wilson has written, just as the first four seals were set off from the last three by the device of having the first four appear as the four horsemen, so also the seven trumpets are divided into four followed by three. The first four appear to be warning judgments with the last three, each one called a woe, being the culmination or fulfillment of that judgment. He goes on, given the context of judgment falling upon the city of Jerusalem, that's the historical context, it is best to take the first woe as the internal strife among the Jewish rebels, the second as the besieging of the city by the Romans, and the third as the fiery overthrow of the city. And so I shall leave it for this morning. The description of the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments in Revelation chapter 9 go home and, and read it this afternoon, it is dramatic, and it is also highly symbolic. We're told of a swarm of locusts who ascend out of the abyss, translated in some versions, bottomless pit, but it's abusan, it's the abyss. It's the place that the demons in the story when Jesus delivered legion said, please don't send us there. Don't send us into the abyss. It's the place where Jesus will send Satan later on in the book of Revelation. But for now, these come up out of the abyss, out of this pit. And they come like a swarm of locusts who were like horses. So again, figure that out. A lamb standing as if slain. A swarm of locusts like horses ready for battle, except that these locusts have human faces, women's hair, and lion's teeth, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. If you try to turn that into something literal, you actually have to have an insect, a bug. It might be really big, or it might just be like a very, very small horse, but it's kind of like a horse, except it has a human face. It has the hair of women, the, the teeth, the fangs of lions, and their wings were like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. Now, you can make it not literal, as some have done, and say, well, maybe it's like a, a battle helicopter or something along those lines, or you can go back to the Old Testament and read the book of Joel, where invading waves 
of armies from the empires of the nations come one after the other upon the land of Israel. And they're described as swarming locusts who have stripped the land bare and left almost nothing for the people of God. That's how these armies are portrayed in, in several places in the Old Testament. And these locusts in the sixth trumpet are followed by an army demonic in fury and set upon the destruction of the land, which I believe represents the Roman siege when they came to put an end to that troublesome little province in Galilee and Judea. And they came because God does not take covenant-breaking lightly, and God keeps his promises. He said, if you do this, if you are faithless and disobedient and you break my covenant, this is what I will do to you. And then he did. But as we wrap this up, I want to circle back to where we started because Revelation is about Jesus. It's not about the end of the world or even, at least not primarily, about the end of the old covenant. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And to see the full portrait that's being drawn for us in these trumpet judgments, we would have to persevere all the way over to the end of chapter 11. And that's going to take at least a couple of weeks more, if the Lord is willing. But we have a bit of a glimpse already in the text that I read at the beginning of the sermon. Remember? As the Lamb, that would be Jesus. As the Lamb opened the seventh seal, we were taken in spirit to a heavenly prayer meeting in the temple of God where the myriads of people that we saw in chapter 7 standing before the throne of God fall silent for half an hour as an angel makes an incense offering and lifts their prayers before the throne of God. But where is the Lamb who is the lion at this point? Well, chapter 7, verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. So we see that when the prayers of the saints ascend before the throne, they reach the ears of the lamb who is in the midst of the throne too. Jesus hears your prayers. This was true then, it is true now, it will always be true for all of the uncomfortable and even horrifying aspects of judgment that are revealed in the blowing of these trumpets. Above it all is the truth that the Lamb in the midst of the throne is our shepherd. He is our Savior. And it is even more sure that he hears our prayers than that we truly desire that for which we pray. Another subject for another day. But he not only hears our prayers... He is the guarantor of a better covenant. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, the lamb who is the lion who is in the midst of the throne not only hears the prayers of his people, he responds to the prayers of his people. When we cry out according to the will of God, he saves his people to the uttermost. And by the power of his indestructible life, he makes continuous intercession for us. Not so much from before the throne of God above, 
but in the very midst of the throne. Because the Lamb, who is the Lion, is also the Lord and our God, Jesus the Christ. The prayers of his people are heard, and the prayers of his people are answered according to the purpose of the one who works all things. All things. Even very, very difficult things. Even the very difficult things that we find in the Olivet Discourse and in the book of Revelation. He is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his sovereign will. This is our Lord and Savior. The Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb of God who has taken away our sin. He is the one who calls us now to join him before the throne of God above, to come to him in prayer and to feast with him at the table of his grace. Let's look to the Lord. Father, open our hearts to receive all that you have for us this day. Open our hearts to receive your grace through your word, through the sacrament, through the fellowship of your people. Father, in all things, work in us according to your sovereign will, all that is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.